0: Welcome to On the Air with Palantir, a podcast by Palantir.net, where we go in-depth on topics related to the business of web design and development. It's July 2016, and this is episode number six. This is a special edition, really, since this year marks the 20th anniversary of Palantir. It's hard to fathom, considering the internet was still very new in 1996, so there were very few web shops that have been around this long. Palantir started as a development agency, then over time, added services such as design and strategy to become the full, well-rounded, end-to-end company that it is today. So we are celebrating our 20th anniversary later this month. I sat down with owners George Demet and Tiffany Ferris to talk about how Palantir started, how it developed into the company it is today, and where we're headed going forward. Hello, Tiffany and George. (laughs) How are you doing today? We're doing well. Yeah, hi Allison. <laughs> Thanks for talking with me. I appreciate it. So we're going to talk about the twenty years of Palantir. it has been It's been—it's hard to believe, right?
1: It's <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I haven't really known anything else. It's kind of funny.
0: You've never had another job?
1: I, that's not true. Uh, I uh, worked for my parents uh, when I was in high school, and, uh, and so they—they they ran a disposal and recycling company. So I did have experience uh, growing up. Uh, driving a garbage truck, and managing a recycling center.
2: Yeah, I, I, this wasn't what I was going to do, um, but it is pretty much the only thing I've done, I, uh, other than have a NASA research grant as an undergrad. This is it. <laughs> what were you going to do? I'm curious. I was going go to go to grad school in astrophysics. That was, my, that was my thing. I really wanted to do um, astrophysics, and um, I really liked cosmology in particular. I wanted to study the origins of the universe. Wow.
0: Okay. Which we're kind of doing through the internet, sort of. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) So let's have a quick overview of Palantir's history. How did Palantir begin?
1: So I actually started Palantir uh, back in the summer of 96. This was between my uh, sophomore and junior year of college. And I had been discovered the web uh, back in the fall of 94 when I was a freshman and had been really, really kind of fascinated by it. It was very new, I think. Netscape was still in beta at that point. And I was just really uh, captivated by this idea of having pretty much anyone in the world being able to publish content that pretty much anyone else anywhere in the world would be able to uh, read and uh, access and view. And I I thought that was uh, kind of revolutionary. And I, and I, could see that this was the start of something really interesting, and I wanted to be a part of it. And so I, I started making some web pages myself, just sort of as a hobby. Uh, I made a uh, fan page uh, for 2001: A Space Odyssey that is still around today after uh, almost 22 years now. And um, and then also discovered that you know folks um, would actually pay me money. To, to build websites and web pages, and uh, after doing this sort of freelance for a while, I decided it was a good idea to start a company around it. And because uh,
2: that's what your family does.
1: That's right. Yeah. I mean, uh, so so that's probably a little bit of helpful background. Uh, I do come on both sides of my family uh, from a couple generations of people who who started and ran family businesses. And so I mentioned that my parents had a disposal company. Uh, my mom's father uh, had a couple of grocery stores in Love North, Kansas. Uh, my dad's family uh, my uh, ran the uh, Demet Candy Company, the folks who uh, brought you the chocolate turtle. And uh, so that was kind of really all I knew, right, was working for someone else was not literally kind of not part of my DNA. And so um, I knew I was going to do something. And when the uh, the web came along, it seemed like this was definitely something I wanted to do.
2: You know, for me, I started in the web um, actually at the same time in, in 1994. And it was kind of this, um, an outgrowth of my love of Latin. So that's the other thing about me is that I... I uh, really love classics, in particular Latin, and I was involved in the Junior Classical League in Ohio. And I first became the the membership director and then became the president of the Ohio Junior Classical League. And for them, I, I learned how to do html and and the web was so new and it was so exciting and i had a um a friend who was at mit who give me server space and this was just so cool that we could we could be out there and and be doing that so then when i met george um when i started at northwestern i um you know i joined up with him we, we were creating a website for our for our dorm and uh, for willard residential college and we really wanted the um our, our residential college was a, was eclectic. I think is probably the best way to, <laughs> to talk about it.
1: I think the proper term was pan thematic. Most of the other residential colleges had a theme, like arts or science or engineering. We were we were all of the themes. We were all of the things.
2: We were all the interesting, interesting people interested in lots of things. And so we really wanted to do um, a, an amazing job, kind of creating that website. And so that's. Um, That's really how George and I started working together in that capacity and then um, ultimately how Palantir got its, um, I would say, second client or first paying client, depending on how you looked at it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Uh, So, you know. One of the things I didn't quite know how to do quite as well as Tiffany does uh, at the time was uh, actually go out and find clients. And uh, that's a skill that Tiffany brought to the table in addition to uh, her technical skills and uh, managerial skills, uh, really bringing some some kind of structure uh, you know, to the enterprise, as it were
2: <laughs> right. I mean, and it all happened the way that I think we still sell today, which is we're looking for, that good fit. And so you just say, okay, this is what we can do. And these are our ideas. And this is what we bring to the table. And that that's essentially how we got as when I was a freshman, and George was a junior, how two students got the, uh, the the job to do Northwestern's main university site. (laughs) It was also the 90s, which is a bit of Wild West. Right, right. It was the Wild West. (laughs) (laughs) That's how it happened. We were at the, we were at the award ceremony for uh, the residential college competition, which we won, of course, mm-hmm. and um, and I was talking to one of the judges who happened to be um, responsible for the web um, at Northwestern at the time. She was, and and she was talking to me about you know our thought process and how we'd approached it, and I was you know talking about things that are so. Uh, so obvious to everyone now, right? The three-click rule, thinking about how users would journey through the path and how you organize information and and um, how you apply human-computer interaction theory to the web. Um, but this being early 97, um, you know, she said to me, I- I'm taking classes to learn what you guys already know. Can I hire you for like $2 an hour as a work study? And I said, well, I already have a NASA research grant, so no, but you can contract Palantir, and my partner will be in Wisconsin, but I'll come in for meetings with you. And that's how we got that contract. So it just all worked out. And that first project was to redo the IT site, the information technology site. And then in 97 through 98, we ended up redoing uh, the main Northwestern site. At the time, it was at Wow.
1: Right. Yeah. No, it, that was actually I mean, so so for folks at Northwestern, I've, I've heard people complain since about the fact that it's northwestern.edu And I, I think we we share we share a little bit of the blame for that, <laughs> uh, you know, but uh, but seriously, like nobody calls it NWU. It's 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 Northwestern mm-hmm. or maybe NU. But I think that might have been taken.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, pretty auspicious beginning, I would say. Considering now you live in Evanston and the office is Evanston, and
1: yeah, uh, uh, we, we never moved. Uh, that full circle, <laughs> total full the, circle. Yeah. Well,
2: this is the thing we we you know we I met George my third day at Northwestern, and we have um, we've been a couple ever since. But we now live within a we we've, we've lived within a six block radius since 1998. <laughs> So wow. our 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 first off campus apartment is yeah, literally um, a block sen- over.
1: Your senior apartment is yeah, two <laughs> yeah, blocks away. It's two
2: blocks away, and yeah, it's uh, this has just been where we we've, we've found a home. Neither of us is from here. You know, we I'm from from Akron, Ohio, and George is from Wisconsin. But we're kind of we met in the middle and literally stayed. Wow. <laughs>
1: yeah, though, I mean, to be fair, uh, I, I do have some family connections to Chicago. You know, my my dad uh, and his family are from Chicago. And so it, it's always felt a little bit like a second home to me, even though I grew up in northern Wisconsin. Um, you know, there's there's also a lot more to do here. Uh, and it's it's a place where, uh, you know, I think even though we are a distributed company and we have customers all over the world, um, it it's a really great place to be. Mm-hmm.
2: What I like about it is that irrespective of, of a physical office or not a physical office, I do consider us to be a firm that's rooted in Midwest values. And I love that Chicago means business and Chicago, but it's, it's business with this ethic. You work hard and you play hard and that's just, and and you treat people fairly, right? That's the way that we do things here. And, um, it's really important to me. So I think that even, even once we, you know, don't have a physical office or if we don't have a headquarters or whatever it is, it's about, it's about the sense of philosophy of place of being really Midwestern being very, um, very authentic, being very genuine and bringing our best selves uh, to what we do.
0: Great. Well, um, what would you say, um, if you can project back to 20 years or 19 or 18 years, and uh, what would you say the focus was for Palantir for the first couple years? Was it just trying to stay afloat? Was it Was there a specific direction you were trying to take at the time?
1: So... So if you go back in time to the mid-90s and kind of remember what the web looked like at that point, right? It was, Do I uh, have to? <laughs> it, was, uh, uh, it, w- it was the era of uh, GeoCities websites and, uh, and, and, and you had, you know, everyone was into like banners that scrolled across your pages and little animated GIF clip art um, that just and animated background patterns and just just really kind of, horribly ugly garish uh, sites that people were creating because you know they could and one of the things that I really wanted to do with Palantir was to to bring more of a a design aesthetic to the web Um, I really felt like it shouldn't be too difficult to create websites that were not just functional but but were actually easy to use and didn't, you know, uh, make you want to claw your eyes out when you looked at them. And, you know, so I thought that there was a real opportunity there and, uh, you know, not just, you know, to be able to do business, but also to really help make the web a better place. And, and that was very much, um, you know, what we want to do for the first, certainly for the first couple of years, um, and even beyond as we, we started partnering with, uh, with other folks, but um, yeah, I think I think making the web look better and 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 work better for people, right, uh, was really key in those first couple of years.
2: And for me I think um, I agree with everything that George said but I also felt very strongly about how the information was organized and presented at the time it was a lot of brochureware people were essentially trying to put these very linear experiences up on the web and you know now we call it content strategy but you know at the time it was information architecture and I really loved to think about The way to organize information in a way that made sense to someone who had no familiarity. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't about creating this highly um, linear journey for them. It was about allowing, I I saw the premise and the the promise is being able to present information, allow people to get what they wanted, but still to also come away with the message you wanted them to have. I thought that was such an interesting challenge to be able to allow people to take control of how they... How they gathered information to really put the control back in their hands. Um, and but but still to to have it be that kind of alignment where you as the as the content provider, were getting your message through, right? And that's still, A lot of what underpins our work today is really this kind of choose your own adventure, and and that's where the the name really comes from, and why why it comes into play. Do you want to tell that story?
1: Yeah, sure, absolutely. So, uh, you know, so the name uh, is something that I came up with. It represents this idea of interconnectedness, right? And uh, and the palantiri are these communication devices that are, you know, in a fantasy realm, are interconnected with each other. And so you can, you know, look in one and communicate with anyone else who has a palantir. So... Uh, you know, and the dominant metaphor at the time that uh, Palantir started was information superhighway. And I, I felt that metaphor was really flawed because uh, it implied this kind of linearity, right? Uh, but the web isn't like that. The web is this very decentralized, interconnected place. And it really fills more, you know, and it actually is, you know, this this network of interconnected communication uh, nodes, really.
2: And it's interconnected, not just in terms of people, which it it certainly is and and always has been since its beginning, but it's also in terms of content, right? I mean, what what I love and I find so fascinating and so interesting is the notion that you don't have to encapsulate all of the knowledge, you can just link to it. Right? So you, you can tell a story and you can pull together these varying threads and braid it together into a narrative in such an interesting way and that anybody can do that. It's so accessible that it's really broken down some of those traditional barriers um, that, that essentially gated who was able to define the narrative. So any person now can define that narrative and string it together. And this is why you know, a lot of our work more recently has dealt with APIs and what we can do to bring different pieces of content from other systems together and ultimately, it's why I'm so passionate about Drupal because I see the ability to weave um, different connected pieces of content together, but allow them to remain authoritative and external sources is so exciting.
0: So it seems that 20 years later, that you know what you what you had outlined for yourselves back then still stands today.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No question. I mean, it's we're we're still facing some of the same sorts of challenges they're they're very different in nature uh but but fundamentally it's it's a question of you know enabling people to be able to to access information or create information or share information in a way uh that's that's findable that's usable that's discoverable and you know and that's what we started out trying to do and that's what we're still trying to do today
2: Right it's it's you know, I have this very Teutonic brain. I like things to be very efficient. And so for me, the notion that I could I could weave these narratives together but allow there to be, you know, Single authoritative sources of information. I don't have to duplicate it. It's very efficient. It's so compelling to me, and this is where I think you see a lot of um, a lot of enterprises getting to now with the, the notion of their omni-channel strategies, right? Where you want to be able to to have a, a single source, but you need to kind of customize what that experience looks like, and you really get by being so efficient with how you're presenting that information and where you're sourcing the information. You get to focus your efforts on how you differentiate it in different channels and different contexts and have other people potentially re- mix and remix your information. Uh, it's just that's that's what's so exciting about, about where we are today. But it's not that different than, you know, in 96, we were really trying to get authoritative sources, right? That mm-hmm. was that was the, the, the key is just to have those sources kind of be out there and have them be integrated together.
0: So you would say that Palantir's core principles and mission really haven't changed at all from... Maybe just better definition.
1: It, yeah, yeah. It, I would agree with that. Yeah, I mean, uh, what, we, what we're what we trying to do, how we're trying to do it really hasn't changed. I think what has changed uh, is, that, uh, is that we've articulated it. We've started talking about it uh, more openly and, and publicly. It's not just locked in our brains. Yeah. Um,
2: <laughs> right, it's this notion of, of of those assumptions that are so deep you're not even aware of them, right? So for so many of the... Of the early years I just we just knew and and because we were a smaller company and everybody worked with with George and I on a daily basis you kind of felt it mm-hmm. you, you didn't know it. I couldn't articulate it very well um, you know it's taken us several tries to be able to get it to the point where we feel confident saying yes this is it and and because words matter so much and and there's such precision when I use language that I'm, I'm constantly trying to make sure. Okay, is this the right word to use? Is this really capturing that that feeling that that that's so deep in our culture that um, that I want other people to be able to grasp onto it? Because you know we we do have this growing firm, and there, you know, our folks here today, George and I are, are clearly the, the the longest standing employees of Palantir, but you know we have folks who have started um, like. We have, we have folks who start in a week. So mm-hmm. how do they get the sense of the history? So it's this notion that, that we have to you know, really have those core values, those guiding principles articulated so that without knowing the lore and the history of Palantir, they can understand it and apply it going forward. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's it's really been a, an interesting challenge and one that, that George and I have been focused on for probably the last 18 months is realizing that all that shared history has to be has to be able to be communicated has to be able to be transferred. Um, and, uh, that's, that's been a really exciting part of the challenge.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's not just communicated, but also contextualized. And, uh, and that, that's the really fun part for me.
0: It's, it's very hard to define your own selves too. You know, it's, it's, a, it's definitely tough work.
1: It is. Um, but I, th- but I think it's, I think it's essential. And I think it's something that, uh, has been kind of a, a hallmark of, of kind of who we are, is is really this constantly, you know, asking ourselves and, and, and trying to be as self-aware as possible about who we are and what we do and why we do it.
2: And also what we don't do, right? right? I mean, I think that, you know, as we look at the growth over the last 10 years, it's really easy to think that we were something we weren't, right? We, we were never a startup, right? We're, we're celebrating our twentieth year, so by definition, we can't be a startup. And we, and even in the last ten years, we aren't, weren't a startup. But it might have felt that way, or it might have looked that way. And so, it's on us; it's our responsibility to make sure that people understand, both our clients and our friends, and and uh, you know, and our colleagues, understand that that we are approaching this with very much a fundamental family business mentality you know, really old school principles. You don't spend money you don't have. You treat people fairly. This this kind of notion that um, that you're always building it. every decision you make is constantly got to be adding up to something. And, um, you know, and I, and I think that's been, we certainly have friends who made other choices with their companies, whether they, you know, consider themselves a tech company or they can, you know, they're a startup and they go after VC. We're just not that. And we totally admire them and wish them well with what they're doing. We're doing something, a little bit different over here, um, so in order for folks to understand that, we have to talk about it.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: We have to say, you know, we don't spend other people's money. You know, we don't spend money we don't have. Um, it's been uh, it, it's been such an interesting journey, particularly for me, not coming from a family business background, to understand really what that means and and why that applies and um, and and be really proud of it. Mm-hmm. I really I really think that that's a compelling thing here because at the end of the day. I've always believed that what you do outside of work makes you better when you are at work. And you have to have time and space in your life for that. And I believe that before I had a family, and I certainly know it to be true now, how I, how I live it, how I articulate it is very different. Um, and, and I think that's right. That's appropriate, that it be able to evolve with you and to be able to change with you. And that's the kind of company that we've built.
0: Well, one of the things I've noticed specifically about Palantir is... Um how involved you've gotten in several communities uh, one of the reasons that i actually knew palantir for years before working here was your commitment to design which george mentioned was uh, uh, an early interest and you did partner with design firms in chicago when you were at the time You didn't have an in-house design department. You were strictly development only. And so you were prescient and smart enough to know that you should partner with some very good design firms in the city. And there is a very strong design community here. And so you actually uh, joined the American Institute of Graphic Arts board at one point um, to become, I think, the web liaison Similar title, something? something.
2: Electronic media chair. Yeah, I was electronic media chair for AIGA Chicago, and that came after several years of working with um, and partnering with those design firms. And that was such an invaluable time in Palantir's history. Um, We, you know, Chicago does have such a very storied and uh, internationally respected design community. And the opportunity to work at such an early stage in my career um, and in Palantir's, you know, lifespan, with some of the vast best, it was just uh, it, it, looking back on it, it was unbelievable, right? It was, you know, to be able to learn and work so closely with um, with designers, really, really smart designers, as they were making that transition from the, um, you know, p- being exclusively print designers to thinking about interactive design and thinking about web design. Um, it was such a neat time for all of us to be, you know, so we were bringing this this very. Digital sensibility with us, and they were bringing, you know, expectations of typography and color fidelity and things that were really difficult, you know, in the, in that early web. Um, it, it, it was really amazing, and that all came out of our work with Northwestern. So, you know, we initially started off partnering with the information technology uh, department over there, and through that work, we advocated that the university relations be um, included in that conversation because we felt that there was a role for branding and photography and, um, and, and just d- design standards um, as part of the work that we were doing for the Northwestern homepage. And, and through that, we ended up learning how to work with traditional print designers. And our business has always been built on this word of mouth, on reputation. And so through that experience, we ended up getting connected into the Chicago design community and passed from firm to firm to firm to firm. And I see that, um, you know, being appointed to the board was really the outcome of that. It was after several years. I think I'd, we'd been working and partnering with design firms since uh, 2001. So really from 2001, I think I became electronic media chair in like 08. Um, and uh, so we had been working for six, seven years but I still reflect on those experiences and what I learned working with those folks and, and, and just in terms of how to relate to clients and how to really be a consultant um, it, was, it was an amazing opportunity it was really great, I'm grateful for it
0: well and around the same time, 2008-ish was when you started to get involved heavily in the Drupal community as well that's right. So pretty um, pivotal year there, I would say.
1: Yeah, well, it was um, with the Drupal uh, decision, actually, we made in 2007. Uh, we, we had started working with Drupal in 2006. And, um, you know, so to, to lay a little bit of background, though, uh, so we we've always worked uh, primarily with open source technologies, free software, open source software uh, from, you know, the very beginning, uh, you know, the the LAMP stack, Linux, Apache, MySQL, PHP, and, uh, and used those technologies. And, you know, and I had always been interested in getting a little bit more involved with uh, open source on the content management side. And we... Did a little bit of looking into that around, I would say, 2001, uh, when some of the kind of the first generation uh, open source CMSs really started to come on the scene. And none of them were really very mature enough at that point. And at that point, we actually thought we could probably do our own just as well, if not better. And uh, so we, we did. We, we had our own CMS for a while. It was called a community platform. I think we did four different major versions of it, uh, each of which was pretty much a complete rewrite. Was it, was it just three? It was when we were
2: thinking about doing the fourth
1: ah, that we decided. Okay, to I mean, do we would. Right, right. So, so, and that was a really interesting learning experience for us because, uh, you know, when you are responsible for creating your own product, that you are then in turn using. Uh, for customer projects, uh, you you have to really be careful because there's a huge temptation to modify it or tweak it or change it every single time. And so what we actually found was we didn't have just one CMS. We had however many dozen different CMSs, uh, each of which was a bespoke version for that individual client because we had had to make some sort of tweak uh, for the for the business needs of that customer. Uh, which was which was great in terms of the short term customer need, right? We could very quickly and inexpensively uh, roll out a site for a customer, get it up very quickly. But when it came time to expand that site, or support that site, or make that site do something different, it was incredibly difficult. And so that was that was one of the big issues uh, that we were running into. Uh, we had worked with some other proprietary. Um, uh, platforms. So uh, there was a, a product that was being used by a lot of higher education institutions who we were working with in the early two thousands, and uh, it it definitely had its challenges, um, you know. But it was something our customers were using. It worked well for a lot of our customers, and. Ultimately, the company ended up deciding to end of life that product, uh, actually without telling any of their customers. Uh, But uh, we we had we had a little uh, inside inside knowledge on that, and 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 Tiffany actually announced it up on stage at South by Southwest, and I think it was like two thousand seven, two thousand eight, and 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 it was really interesting, kind of seeing everyone sort of flee the room when you made that announcement.
2: The, the the twenty people, right? the, the twenty people, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, you know,
1: but it was it was a pretty big uh, it was a pretty big uh, uh, session, and you know, so at that point things were really, you know, kind of coming where we realized we really needed to get involved with something that you know was going to be more widely supported by a wider community, and that also wasn't going to be tied to you know, the commercial whims mm-hmm. of one particular company. And, um, and, and so actually, I'm going to let you tell a story of how we started working with Drupal
2: you know, it happened over several years, really. Um, in 2006, um, Robert Petrick, who's in one of those amazing Chicago designers um, that we were lucky enough to work with, he, he brought us in on a project um, for Washington University in St. Louis. And the project was a little unusual because it wasn't an implementation project. It was going to be an implementation project, but first it started with a consulting project where they wanted us to look at the available landscape of content management solutions, both bespoke in terms of our uh, community platform was on the table and under consideration, open source projects as well as proprietary. And I made the decision, I helped them make the decision, and open source was absolutely the right choice for them. You know, again, we narrowed it down. Okay, should it be Drupal? Should it be Joomla? Uh, there were a couple other options that we were considering at the time, and and for them, Drupal was the right choice. So we, um, you know, built out that first site for Wistel, um in Drupal four six, and it was a little bit frustrating. But four seven came out actually before the site launched, so we immediately upgraded it to four seven. We had looked at four six before and not used it because we couldn't do the things that we wanted, we needed to visually. We were working with a lot of design firms and we couldn't tell them, oh, the technology choice we've made won't allow us to, to present the interface visually the way you want it to be done, right? That was why we had our own community platform. And in 4.6, we felt that was still the case. We were very much limited by that that theming layer. Um, then 4.7 ended up being the right choice for, Washington University in St. Louis, and so we built out the site there. It was a bit frustrating, but we still were able to achieve the level of fidelity that we wanted. But right as we were wrapping up that project and getting ready to launch it, um, Drupal 5 came out. And so without launching the 4.7 version, we ended up going to Drupal 5 right away. Um, and that was when our team said, oh, this is different, and we can do everything that um, that you know is being asked of us visually, everything we want to do visually. Um, and by the way, the security team that Drupal has is larger than our entire firm. So it was really in early 2007, in February of 2007 when we were faced with rewriting our community platform from version 3 to version four. it was going to be a complete rewrite. Um, you know I just looked at George and I said, you know, I think we need to deprecate our own CMS in favor of, of Drupal. I think we need to put our efforts um, in that direction. Um, so then the next month, we actually sent George and and uh, one of our colleagues at the time, Larry Garfield, who's known as Krell in the Drupal community, we sent him out, them both out to Sunnyvale where um, Drupal was having um, a, a DrupalCon uh, to learn more about it. And, and George came back and said, oh, I think this is a community you'd really like. I think you'd really get involved in this. I said, ah. I don't know. Let's just start with where we're at right now. And then, you know, you do fast forward. That that year of 2007 was where we did a lot of our first projects. We got all of our clients off of our own community platform. Um, we started any new project we would start doing in Drupal. Well,
0: uh, how how were they when you suggested getting them off the existing platform and putting them onto Drupal? Would, were they receptive to that or were they hesitant? or
2: We um, – we did it gradually as people needed new enhancements or needed new versions of their sites. Um, at the time, none of the sites we were working on had particularly long lifespans, right? And and we ended up having to support the community platform for several years thereafter. Um, so it was really when someone came to us for new work, we said, "Oh, here's this, here's Drupal, and we think you should move here for the following reasons." And we would lay it out, um, but we wouldn't we weren't going to do any new enhancements to it. And We told them very clearly, "We're not we're not in active development on the community platform anymore."
1: So, so one one distinction that's important to make, I think, is that you know, with our own product, the community platform, it wasn't an open source uh, product, but we did let our customers uh, have the right to modify the source code themselves. Um, they just didn't have the right to redistribute those changes. So you know if if customers wanted to take on uh that responsibility of updating or you know maintaining the site themselves they were certainly able to do that or um you know we gave them the option of moving to Drupal.
2: Right. So so really through 2007 and into 2008. 2008 is really where we got involved in the Drupal community per se. And that's when I went out to Boston and I really said, "Oh, this is this is a community I would love. This is something that um, I just the the ethos of it, um, you know, getting to meet Drees and um, and and Andy Byron and uh, you know Moshe Weitzman and all the early kind of um, very influential. Drupal developers and just how welcoming and how open they were. And what we were able to build with Drupal was so much more than we would be able to build if we were responsible for the whole stack. It just started to fall into place. It started to make sense that we could do more for our clients. And that's ultimately what's always driven us is we're trying to add value. Mm -hmm. We're trying to say, you know, because the clients we work with have limited resources, they're always under constraints. What is the most we can do for them? How how much can we accomplish? How much value can we give back to them? How how much easier can we make their lives um, by you know the choices that we make all along the project? And Drupal was one of the ones that that made a lot of sense for them. Um, you know, it, it had roughly the same implementation costs as any other proprietary or custom solution. Um, and but in terms of the long term it was much less expensive because you didn't have the long-term licensing fees. You had the community patching issues. So, you mm-hmm. know, sometimes, you know, a client would say, oh, well, there's, was there is a, I'm, I'm noticing this bug on the site. And we say, oh, actually, that was a, that's a module and it's been patched and we can patch that for you. You know, it, um, it really opened it up and allowed us to focus. So all these kind of pivotal points, you know, as you noted in Palantir's um, history, I think they. They come around our ability to focus, right? So when in in two thousand one, when we really started partnering in earnest with design firms, it allowed us to focus and really hone our craft and, and understand how to do content strategy and how to do um, how to to architect solid technical solutions. And then again in in two thousand eight, when we focused in on Drupal, it allowed us to realize, okay, here's how, um, you know only build what you absolutely need to build. It really allowed us to focus and do more with our client budgets. And again, I would say 2016 is, a, is another one of those pivotal years for us where we realized how to focus in and really get to the nugget of the business problem that needs to be solved. We we have the opportunity now to influence um, businesses and, and the success of those uh, businesses and organizations as well, since we do so much work with nonprofits and, and higher ed in particular, but really how to solve Core problems that aren't technology problems, right? Mm-hmm. They, they're problems that, that reach across the organization and at every every level. And so, the fact that we're able to focus in on it from from that perspective with that lens, um, I, I see this as a another kind of transformational moment for Palantir.
0: It's it seems like you you had some very pivotal choices that you made two thousand one to two thousand eight, in particular, partnering with design firms. Mm. Um, choosing open source, eventually choosing Drupal, that you were sort of on the forefront when the mid2000s hit that um, that was when it seems to me, from my perspective, um, you were a very big fish in a tiny pond at that time. You had this incredible design aesthetic and appreciation you knew how to work with design firms at that point you weren't doing design in house yet and you were one of the few firms who had really embraced drupal in particular and that community was exploding and i'm and i'm not sure if you could see that that was going to explode if you were able to predict that
1: it was it was pretty apparent uh when I went to uh, Sunnyvale in early 2007, and that was a very small conference. It was uh, maybe a couple hundred people, and and not all of them were Drupal people, actually. and But it was really, really clear uh, just from the conversations that were happening and the folks who were there that uh, Drupal was on the verge of becoming a, a big deal. And mm-hmm. it was really funny because you know i think the first couple of years that we started working with drupal we would go to industry conferences like higher ed conferences or museum conferences and people would be like oh what do you do and i'd say oh we work with drupal and then people were like drupal what's that and then a couple of years later uh, we would go to the same conferences and people would literally come up to me and be just like I hear you guys are experts in Drupal, and I need a Drupal expert. Uh, So there really was a a huge shift, um, you know, and I think between 2008 and 2011, when, you know, Drupal went from being this kind of niche open source project that very few people had heard of to something that, you know, powers some of the, uh, you know, biggest and most ambitious sites on the web.
2: And I think a lot of that has to do with the ecosystem that was built up around Drupal, and not not just Acquia, but especially Acquia, you know, which is the firm that, that Dries Dreis kind of uh, founded and is the CTO of, that that really brought a lot of visibility to Drupal, particularly host around hosting and and 24/7 support. I think that was a, a really important moment for Drupal, but I think it was happening before then as well. With um, firms not just like Palantir, but the the work that Phase Two was doing in, in the government sector, and um, th- you know there are a lot of firms both in the U.S. and in Europe who were doing this very ambitious, very large scale work. You had um, you had Examiner at the really pushing the development of Drupal 7. Um and uh, you know the, and then ev- you know eventually the White House goes to Drupal and and everything that was happening both with Warner Brothers and Sony um, BMG with putting all of their artists on Drupal. So you had, Drupal became this kind of de facto go-to when you had a project that was, as George said, ambitious, right? It didn't necessarily have to be large. Sometimes they were um, technically complicated and involved a lot of integrations between different kinds of Um, of data sources. That was a a lot of the work that we did, both in higher ed and for museums, where we were combining, say, digital asset management systems with um, content management systems, with, you know, active uh, directory or LDAP-based user solutions. You know, any kind of complexity at that level. Um, Drupal's so good at tying those systems together. Or if you wanted it to go headless, right? Now, um, Drupal's very good if you want to have you know, say a node front end um, to your data source and, and Drupal just knows how to connect people, how to connect things and it and it gives you such a, a good basis for what you're trying to do or trying to replicate. Right. Mm-hmm. If you need a thousand sites, right, this is again kind of what Pfizer does. And they've got such huge regulatory concerns that, you know, Drupal just was always there. And 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 those of us in the in the I would say the second wave of Drupal, Palantir is not a first wave Drupal shop, Um, you know, we really did start to come online with Drupal 6. And we, uh, you know, we we were essentially writing for those pieces that our clients need. So again, this is that, that, that ethos that we have where we're going to find that, that win-win solution. And what we did early on, and, and in particular, when we made our name with Drupal 7, where we um, created workbench, it was because this was a need that our clients had and multiple clients had that need at the exact same time. Then you had, you know, it was a, a space that Drupal just really wasn't wasn't solving. Um, and then you know it was something that we had the capacity, we had the expertise in-house to be able to write. So you know we were able to combine pool budgets from some of the smaller, you know, nonprofit clients that we had. Combine them together, get them that better solution than they would be able to afford on their own. Make Drupal better at the same time. You know, those are those kind of, those are those niches that we're constantly looking for. Okay, where can we add the most value here? Where is that problem that we can pull the resources together to solve, whether it's people or time or money?
0: Well, and I think one of the direct results of of the fact that maybe Palantir wasn't a first adopter, but very early still, um, and the creation of Workbench, which has proven to be very popular. Um, and going back to the fact that that those choices um, led Palantir to be a pretty big fish in a small pond for a long time, one of the things I think is amazing about Palantir is that for 17 years, I believe you told me you never had to do any marketing.
1: That's right. Yeah, I mean that's no no outbound marketing, uh, right? Yeah, yeah. but yeah. that's
0: that's a dream, right? Like yeah. to never have to look. I mean, the referrals just came so naturally. But but then you know, 17 years in, as Drupal became more ubiquitous and more people right. were adopting it and more people were recognizing the, the design abilities of it and the flexibility on the front end, um, marketing all of a sudden was needed <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because there was more competition. So how, how would you say the landscape has changed? I mean, I'm going to guess that that was a pivotal moment too, was just how that landscape changed.
1: Well, I, I yeah, I don't know that it's a pivotal moment. I think it's been a general trend we've been seeing over the last few years. And you know, and fundamentally I, I think if you uh, if you you know, we talked about focusing, right? And then that's important. But I think if you if you narrow your focus too much and, and you find yourself in, in too much of a niche, uh you know, and people associate you with a specific technology or, you know, a specific type of client, um, that's, you know, that's not a great situation to be in. And, you know, uh, and, and I think we are, you know, I wouldn't actually describe us as so much as a Drupal shop. We are a, you know, we're a full service boutique firm that, you know, uh, helps customers be successful on the web and, and fundamentally, you know, the, the tools that we use to accomplish that, you know, what's important to us is, is helping, um, helping our customers make the right choices, collaborating with our customers, being able to help them achieve success. And Drupal is and historically has been a really great way to do that for an awful lot of our customers. But at the end of the day, you know, it, it's not about being the biggest or the best or the most well known Drupal shop. It's about being a firm that can help, you know, achieve success for our customers in, you know, a really smart way. And and that's that's something that we because you know, because, you know, we were so closely associated with Drupal, we didn't, we didn't talk about as much. And that's something that we have started talking about, uh, a lot more in the last few years. Um, you know, so, uh, if that's, if that's marketing, sure. <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: I think it is. I think that, you know, early, early on it used to be, you know, um, in that kind of those days when we were partnering, it was, oh, you're the, You're the people who know tech, who know how to talk to designers. Mm -hmm. So we want to work with you. Which is a valuable skill. (laughs) Absolutely. And we keep it with us. We still have it today. But at the time, what we were doing was problem solving. We were hearing okay, what they wanted, what their clients wanted, and how we solved it. right? And then you fast forward to Drupal. And then we had this really great run where it was like, oh, Palantir, you know Drupal right we want to work with you but at the end of the day we did the same thing you come in you have a problem to solve you know they picked us for different reasons and and they were pleased with the outcomes and that's how we ended up getting those referrals and that engine but as drupal matured as palantir matured and quite honestly as the web matured as a as a channel in its own right, not not kind of ancillary to the, the traditional channels that, that businesses and organizations relied on. As it became coequal and perhaps even dominant, the expectations of what people needed from the web started to go up. And so I think that the notion that, oh, you're good at this tech thing was no longer really gonna be compelling. It was kind of a given. Oh, you know, we're gonna bring you in as a partner. We assume you have technical expertise. We need to know that you have the strategic expertise to help us make those good decisions. And we need to know that you are going to are going to to work with us to help us build our internal capacity around this because you know the web has gone from something that you would just give to, you know, your neighbor's kid who knew how to do HTML to, you know, the core of many businesses, right? Are and and right now we're in this era where even the oldest and most established businesses are going through digital transformation. It is reshaping how everyone works right now. So the expectations and rightly so have changed, right? They've increased and Palantir has had the luxury of all of this time to mature and to hone our craft and we are still excellent problem solvers. That approach and combined with, with all of the experience we've built up over the last 20 years makes us a really great partner. So
0: now it's July 2016, celebrating the 20th anniversary, and we're having a company retreat. We're shutting down everything for a week to bring all the employees from, one, as far as South Africa to, <laughs> to Chicago, so we can all get together and celebrate. And, and there's going to be some work, too, internally, but it's going to be a lot of celebrating. So my final question so what would you like to see for the next five years moving forward or or two years what would you say <laughs> <laughs> is it is it overwhelming is it too much no, it- <laughs> no
1: I mean you know we have you know uh Actually, a couple of years ago, we um, you know we set out a couple of of kind of very high level goals for the company, and and we are we're kind of in the middle of that uh, of that process of of continuing to work toward those goals. We refined them a little bit uh, at the beginning of this year, but they're still kind of fundamentally the same. And you know, it's about helping our clients achieve success on all of our projects. That's number one. Uh, number two, continuously learning, sharing, and applying new knowledge, and uh, this is one I'm really interested in, in having us focus uh, a lot more on in the in the next coming years. That uh, that this uh, learning and applying new knowledge is really not just about you know technical skill uh, or expertise, but it's really about um, New ways of understanding uh, people's problems and looking at people's problems in new and different w- ways, and developing uh, our skills internally um, in terms of being able to, you know, to understand and address those those issues and, and questions and concerns, uh, and, and and the goals that our customers have. And then, of course, you know, uh, continuing to be a sustainable, well-run organization with healthy finances and a happy staff, right? Uh, those are the three things we're working on. Um, I think, you know, when we get together, uh, you know, here for our onsite, uh, we are going to uh, really talk a lot about how we're going to do those things and, and, and figure out uh, and, and talk about what, um, you know, what we're going to do. Uh, we've spent uh, a fair amount of time over the last year talking about what we have done and, you know, how we are where we are today. And I think it's time to start, you know, looking to the future.
2: Building on what George said, I think this, um, I think learning really is the key. And it's about taking what we learn on every project and elevating it to the level of organizational learning um, and doing the same thing for our clients. We have a long track record of, of collaboration and we have you know clients who embed with us and, and who we help level up and we make kind of essential parts of our projects and that's fabulous, and that's a, that's a huge service for capacity building for our, for our clients, um, and I think the the opportunity I see is is being able to take that and and transform the organizations as well, so that they also have an organizational learning moment. So for me, you know, I'm I'm really focused on the notion of of making sure that we're getting the most out of. Every opportunity, out of every decision, and understanding why things worked or why things didn't work, and how we make it better, and it's this notion of continuous improvement, right? And and really making that a core part of our service. Um, I see that as the the kind of the biggest change because I think that you know as we as the industry and as the web kind of matures um, and continues to mature, I think we're we're getting to this point where we're going to see fewer and fewer you know, exponential um, leaps. And I think it's going to start to plateau off. And so the, the notion that you kind of create and, and institutionalize incremental learning um, is really going to be key for us and, and for our clients. So that's that's what I want to focus on, is how we help them continuously improve not only their, their website and their web presence and their infrastructure and and their digital strategy, but how they can, can help continue to incrementally improve their teams and their organizations to be able to take advantage and recognize opportunities when when they come up and cake there will be cake
1: (laughs) I hope there will be cake who's in in charge of the cake I'm not (laughs) in charge of the cake
0: (laughs) well thank you very much thank you thanks for uh thanks (laughs) Allison looking forward to our retreat and uh looking forward to the next five absolutely next 20 yeah (laughs) next 20 why stop at five next 20 Thank you so much for listening. I have to say, after three years of being with Palantir myself, and after having worked with them for several years prior to that, I'm thankful that I get to go to work every day with really, really smart and thoughtful people who are creating great work and toiling every day to make the web a better place. So happy anniversary, Palantir. If you want to hear more episodes of On the Air with Palantir, Please make sure to subscribe on our website at palantir.net. There you can also read our blog and see our work. Each of these episodes is also available on iTunes. And of course, you can follow us on Twitter at Palantir. Thanks for listening.